Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Leadership Now with me, Dan Pontefract. Today in the house, have I ever been waiting for this chat? Christian Stadler. Christian, welcome. First a bio, then we'll get to a whole whack of different questions. Christian is a professor in strategic management at Warwick Business School, quite near my father, by the way. Prior to, he was at University of Bath School of Management, Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth, and Innsbruck University. Christian addresses fundamental strategic questions that enables companies to grow, adapt, and consistently beat their competitors. In his brilliant book, Open Strategy, Mastering Disruption from Outside the C-Suite, he explains how companies can craft strategy in a new, unconventional way, one tailor-made for today's faster, more volatile business environment. Do we even, even need that today? Yes, we do. Uh, his work has been featured thousands of times in outlets such as Harvard Business Review, Sloan Management Review, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, Bloomberg, Business Week, the BBC, amongst a host of others. His research examines how organizations can achieve sustainable competitive advantage. Christian is particularly interested in questions related to, uh, one, learning and innovation, and two, diversification of that in 2021, Thinkers 50 bestowed and shortlisted Christian for the Strategy Award, and in 2013, placed him on the Thinkers 50 radar list. So it's 10 years of being on the radar. I've stared at you for a long time, now a decade, Christian. Uh, you possess a really wide-ranging repertoire of insights, interests, research, and opinion, which is why I've been dying to talk to you. So we're going to spend some time today on your specialties. But first, I want something. I want to play back something that you've written and then sort of ask your opinion today, Christian, on it sort of today. So you say the following. Formulating and executing sound organizational strategy is difficult work. Strategy is often made by elite teams and thus can be limited by their biases about competitors, customer needs, and market forces. And it can be an uphill battle, though, convincing stakeholders across the company to channel money, time, and energy in a new and unproven direction. Your solution to both the strategy formulation and execution challenges uh, is unique, if not radical. And you say, Christian, open up your strategy process. And I love the word open for so many reasons. So, Christian, why should we be opening up the strategy process to the organization writ large? You know, first of all, thanks for the intro. You made me blush a little bit. Uh, thank you. Another, uh, another thank you. You picked up a quote which I can still, you know, positively respond to. We all written stuff in the past, which we, you know, find, find a little embarrassing these days. But that's, you know, with this one, I, I, I can really live well with still. Um, maybe some stats uh, on this first. Uh, yeah. When you ask around why strategy fails, it is actually most often in the execution side. Uh, tons of surveys in this space and somewhere between 50 and 90% uh, of the respondents say that the reason for a failure in the strategy domain was because something went wrong in the execution. Now, why is that? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think... Uh, Sometimes it's an understanding question where things that sound really smart and great uh, when you talk about this in the boardroom, maybe when you bring in a consulting firm, uh, once people in the front line hear about this, uh, it's just difficult for sort of, you know, translating this into their operational reality. Uh, so that can be one reason. The other one could be is that they don't like what they hear. Yeah, that they uh, simply think this, this is not something I, I want to do here. And uh People will find ways to undermine uh, strategies if they don't like them. So uh, how can I sort of, you know, 
make sure that none of those two reasons become a big issue. Uh, I think involvement, you know, that's really the answer. Bring people into the discussion, uh, then they have an ability to translate some of those things already in the process, understand them, and they automatically develop psychological ownership if they have uh, a word and a say in this. Uh, Numbers to back this up again, we conducted a survey where we asked uh, people who, has, who have done open strategy in which way it might benefit uh, them. And 70% of them told us that opening up uh, helped them with getting more commitment around strategic goals. So, so Christian, one of the things that seems, um, how might I say that with a, a tongue of cynicism, uh, is that the Many organizations are rife with hierarchy, clueless leaders, uh, syncophants, psychopathy. And what you have is essentially still Taylorism at play within the management ranks. Yet, and by the way, I'm with you, obviously, so I'm, I'm pulling you a little bit. But why is it that open strategy offers this sort of more uh, diverse source of external knowledge, yet it seems so many senior leaders in particular refuse to kind of you know open it up and, and get that buy-in and or just the ideation from people who are at the front lines or even mid-management. So first of all, if the leadership doesn't want it, don't waste your energy. Yeah, it will not work. <laughs> that's that's the you know uh, reality that uh, they have to buy into this uh, process. Uh, we've seen, uh, for example, a small engineering type firm in Germany where the CEO was sort of in two minds, but said, "Okay, we'll give it a shot." Yeah, but then the management team was split. Some of them really felt uh, that they should be the ones calling the shots, and when the results of that process of you know more of one of those open strategy techniques were not aligned with what they liked then they really discarded it and uh, all it does mm -hmm. in a situation like this is all those who were involved get more discouraged and more annoyed about the whole thing so don't do it if the leadership doesn't want it now i would say that actually uh most leaders are open to this and i've you know been uh speaking and engaging with people across the globe where in some settings uh, it's harder to do this yeah because you generally have sort of more hierarchical approach uh, to uh, to organizations but I think what resonates everywhere is the need to involve different important stakeholders. Uh, and, you know, you, you can frame it as such. Uh, that takes off the edge if you're in a place where open kind of, you know, uh, doesn't resonate as much as it does with you and me. Uh, if you talk about bring those people who really can make or break your stuff uh, in uh, to the fold, then, yeah, you know, people will say, sure, that's smart. So how does open strategy, if we continue this thread a little bit, differentiate itself, I suppose, or what, what mechanisms or mechanics does a leader need to employ when you're, you know, a, a smallish company of whatever, 50 to 100, the midsize, you know, if it's maybe 100 to 2,000, and then that there's kind of two uh, large levels, right? 2,000 to 5,000, 5,000 and much bigger, which becomes kind of almost multinational in nature. Is there a, di is there a different playbook that needs to be prescribed by the leader when your size of company is different? Uh, not entirely. Uh, of course, there is some techniques uh, that are suited for different parts of the of the process yeah and particularly when i look at the tail end of the strategy process the one that is more working on execution and uh, implementation uh, then you want to get as many people involved as possible so if you have a very large organization to do that usually you have to go digital yeah so there's some mechanisms where you use some sort of you know discussion forum or you use uh 
uh, a jam technology that's from IBM, something that is sort of very smart in that space. You can involve many, many thousands uh, uh, this way. And you probably don't have to do that if you are in a much smaller company where you can do things hands-on. But then there's, you know, parts somewhere in the ideation space, in the formulation space, where even large organizations, they should, in my uh, view, involve more people than usual, but it doesn't mean that everyone necessarily needs to be involved in that. And mm -hmm. that means that some of the workshop techniques that uh, you can use in a large company, you can also use in a small company and vice versa. I love also how you just brought up IBM Jam. I mean, the, the idea, right, of having um, literally, right, an asynchronous or synchronous jam to unpack, discuss, ideate, sort of unearth, so to say. So what you touched on really is kind of like a process. And so, you know, uh, you know, a, an academic colleague of yours at INSEAD, Ludo van Heiden, right, came up with fair process, right? You engage, you explore, you explain, execute, evaluate. That's a process of collaboration, which itself could be an open strategy mechanism. So, Christian, what are some other tools or techniques or processes that you've seen work that allow that conduit, right, of uh, ideation and input that makes the employee, the team member feel, oh, I'm, I'm part of something here. I can help the strategy. So one of my favorites is a nightmare competitor exercise. The name itself, yeah, sort of, you know, uh, resonates really well. The core idea is the following. Um, companies will face some sort of disruption at some point in their history, probably, yeah, or many of uh, them do. Now, uh, how do you possibly prepare for those things? You can frame it as an opportunity or mm -hmm. you can frame it as a threat. And Clayton Christensen, the Harvard professor who you know, introduced this whole idea around disruption, the innovator's dilemma, he always said that uh, framing it as a threat is probably much more effective. The reason is that there's so many things companies have to do. And uh, unless they feel it's something that is existential to them and the real threat, they'll probably have other things that they prioritize. So framing it as a threat you know, is a good idea. Now, what the nightmare competitor exercise does, it brings together people from both outside the company and inside company. Mm -hmm. I would say, you know, half-half is a good mixture because you need crucial uh, voices from outside as well. And if there's too few, then their input is easily drowned out. You form teams, uh, mixed teams of internals and externals, and they develop a fictional company that potentially would disrupt your organization if it exists. Yeah, So it gives you this freedom to think broadly and then you have uh, competitions between those theme teams where they develop these business models. I think you call it Shark Tank in North America. We call it Dragon's Den. That sort of style, you know, how, how you set up uh, the workshop. It's, it's a real fun thing. Um, There's a German consulting company who was involved in writing the book uh, as well. And they have done north of 200 of those type of, uh, of workshops. Uh, uh, and just, you know, it's it's inspiring. Uh, I've run some of those as well. I've done them both in the classroom. I've done them with executive clients. Uh, it's, a, it's a cool exercise. I love it. And I have seen that employed uh, rather uh, well here in North America. And just for a point of clarification for listeners or viewers and Christian, uh, being English, we speak the Kings and Queens English. So in Canada, it's Dragon's Den. We don't do Shark's Tank. That's for our Americans oh. down south. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's okay. My, my, my apologies, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. No, actually, I'm just making sure people understand. Well, what's a shark tag? And uh, anyway, we're all good here. Okay. Now, we're, we're going to dovetail into a bunch of different threads here because you're just so wide ranging, as they say, in insights, research, and opinion. Um, I'm curious, Christian, your current take today, sort of here we are in 2023, we're three years post pandemic or kind of still in a pandemic, really. The 
World Health Organization hasn't called this whole thing off yet. So I'm curious what you're noticing, the signals, the bat signals, if you will, from your research and your working and dealings with uh, companies and students and leaders. What's the current state of organizational culture today? Like, I know it's a wide ranging view and you have different companies that are doing different things, but have you seen something different, generally speaking, pre-pandemic to where we are today in kind of mid-ish 2023? Um, I would say yes, yeah. Some of them happened after some because of, of the pandemic. So there's this whole challenge about labor shortage, I think, that has uh, been there a little bit before that, but it seems more pronounced because during the pandemic, there's some people in the workforce who decided that, well, maybe I don't want to work a normal job uh, as I did before. Uh, that kind of accelerates that. Now it gets mingled with very difficult political questions around migration that most companies notice is, is necessary but it's uh, not usually a vote winner in most Western countries to be very pro-migration. Uh, so, so that's sort of an, a big, big topic which companies uh, labor about. Yeah, no pun, pun intended here. <laughs> um, that's, that's something I think that uh, I noticed. It coincides also with this whole, uh, so do people need to come back into the office or will they continue working from home? Right. Uh, people discovered that maybe it's quite convenient uh, to work from home, but... The mid layer of management, the upper layer of management find it much more difficult uh, to handle this. Uh, I have a quick question. Uh, before that, I just popped down my my nose and, uh, you know, somebody was able to answer. Now I kind of need to try and reach them online. So that's not as, as comfy uh, for leaders and companies try to sort of figure out how, how they can organize uh, that. Uh, and then the third big thing I've uh, certainly picked up is the the whole technology uh, stuff is is very sort of real with I mean you know a few weeks ago uh, whenever you open a newspaper there was something written about chat GTP uh, there so you know big big topic uh, that's one uh, technology uh, dimension but there's there's many yeah uh, and it's it's a continuation from what we have seen uh, before car industry for example you know electrification mobility solutions all this stuff uh, keeps the executives uh, awake at night. Maybe one last one, yeah, I, I forgot that, that I also notice more and more executives worry about is the whole geopolitical uh, side of things. Uh, you know, both internally, uh, there was this, you know, long, long post-war period where uh, uh, companies stayed out of, of politics, but with hot issues around climate change, around social justice, uh, there's an expectation uh, from clients that businesses have a voice on this. And it's tricky because whichever way you know, you air your opinion, it tends to not resonate with another group uh, uh, in your country. Um, and then there's the big international dimension with, you know, China and, uh, and Russia uh, starting to drift further apart from uh, the, the Western world than we have seen before. And, you know, war of Ukraine is just one phenomenon that falls in there. And, and that creates very, very tricky situation for many companies. Yeah, indeed it does. I mean, the geopolitical nuance from uh, sort of dancing in between what China needs, wants, and what it's trying to do longer term versus what, you know, the West, if you will, are trying to accommodate. It's quite a dance for sure. So I can see how that does have significant effect on strategy ultimately. 
Now, one of very, sorry, you know, to, to add, you know, it of course depends a lot where you are as well. Uh, I spent yeah. a bit of time in the Middle East. I lived two years in uh, in Nairobi, came back in September, and uh, the perspectives are different there. You know, we might think we are uh, coming from the West. Oh, we've been so helpful there. You know, the perspective for many people in Kenya is whether you steal from us or the Chinese steal from us, uh, what's the difference? We see where we get the better deal. Right. They're the new Switzerland. Great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, one of the things I picked up on, which you have already proven in your research, and by the way, I'm one of those people that do re uh, read academic papers. I know you've asked managers and leaders to do so. So I'm I'm that crazy guy that has already been listening to you, Christian. So you've actually studied uh, intra-firm geographic mobility, and you've proven that organizational performance actually can be enhanced by the conduit of the transfer of knowledge when one said employee is plucked up, put into another unit or even another geography and another unit because it creates, I'm assuming, stronger weak ties or stronger ties themselves, the knowledge transfer itself, the the uh, the blossoming, if you will, right, of that currency of intellect and collective intelligence. So my question for you, I suppose, knowing that your research proves that there is um, benefits to intra-firm geographic mobility. What is it that today's organizations should be thinking about from the appetite and the thirst and the perspective of young people who are Gen Z and or millennials that are actually kind of yearning for those experiences? And, and so should we be doing, Christian, things like, you know, um, more job tours of duty and kind of internal fiber and Upwork and sign a gig economy and just transfers of people into other units so that we can uh, increase X, Y, Z. Do we do that, Christian? And what do we increase of X, Y, Z if we do do that? I mean, I, I love the idea. Uh, my older son is sort of at the very tail end of the uh, the Gen Zs, yeah. So he's a twenty twelve born, obviously far away still from work, and uh, he's been traveling widely. Loves it, yeah. Uh, the experiences you pick up when you live somewhere else how to replicate yeah so uh, you know co companies need to make this possible absolutely yeah? uh, they will benefit from it it helps them to tap also into maybe new geographies yeah when we talked earlier about labor shortage being an issue by some of your people having spent time in a geography they maybe would usually not go to they make some connections and figure out well, maybe, you know, how we can start an office over there and work with people, kind of make a cultural fit that uh, I didn't think of or couldn't think if I haven't lived there. So mm -hmm. definitely, you know, get get people travel. By the way, my eldest as well, born 2003 and uh, has been doing those, uh, the, the, those tours uh, during her uh, degree. So I can completely relate as a, as a father of a Gen Z and them wanting these experiences, which is partially why I asked. So thanks for being personal as well about uh, your own son. Now, I got to uh, almost rapid fire a couple other questions here. So hope, you've written previously that hope is a powerful emotion. Smart business leaders, uh, they, they know this and they use it to rally the troops. And so if you have this kind of three-prong approach about hope, about hiring um, people with higher levels of hope than you possibly, um, second, needing to kind of create an environment that's conducive to hope, and then thirdly, the communication being inspiring and hopeful. So I, I need some hope, Christian. I do. And I'm sort of leaning on you right now to help me understand why hope is important. And what can we do, in, inclusive of your three strategies, right, to sort of inculcate this sense of hope that not all is lost and we're actually on a more hopeful trajectory than we were sort of three or five years ago? 
Well, you know, you are in North America. You guys are much more hopeful than us Europeans anyway. <laughs> you know, we, we tend to be much more miserable <laughs> and think everything is going downhill. Um, I don't know. You know, young people that I meet uh, and I do particularly, you know, my, my students, uh, they're still very optimistic. You know, they, they see opportunities out there. And, you know, I, I've been teaching in Dartmouth. I've been teaching over here. I've been teaching uh, in, in Africa. And that's a trajectory I see everywhere. Um, maybe more so even that than the millennials. Yeah. So the, the kind of, you know, Gen Z, uh, I think, start to be a bit more positive. Uh, again, uh, I read something about this uh, yesterday. And uh, the argument there was that it's partly to do with uh, if people have more information, then they're more confident. And that kind of, you know, gives them also that certainty that uh, they can make things work. They have less of an imposter syndrome. Now the Gen Zs, they've, you know, not been around when there was no Google. In other words, they have much easier access to information uh, than uh, you and me had as, as we grew up. Uh, uh, I think, you know, there's a lot of hope out there uh, and I wouldn't be downcast. Excellent. Well, okay, I mean, a new infusion of hope. Thank you for that. <laughs> Uh, but almost paradoxically, you also kind of almost bring up Steve Jobs in a recent piece that you did and also a neat little video from some mountaintop that you're on. And uh, Steve Jobs famously said, it's really hard to design products by focus groups. A lot of times people don't know what they want until you show it to them. And you say, don't listen to your customers. And you sort of go on to describe some reasons. So I'm asking you, Christian, why should we not be listening to customers? And tell us a bit about how that relates to hope, strategy, culture, and so forth. Okay. Um, not because customers uh, would be more or less stupid than us, but because they're precisely as stupid as, as the two of us. <laughs> uh, <laughs> my point here is, you know, it's really hard to articulate what you really want uh, and what you like. Often you don't know. Uh, there was a famous experiment done uh, in Southern California where people were asked why they're saving energy. And, you know, they came up with reasons like we want to do good for the environment. The next thing that, uh, you know, team of researchers did, they uh, sent out little probes and different probes to different households uh, with explaining uh, in some reasons, you know, okay, it's good for you uh, to reduce the energy need because uh, that's that's good for the environment. And some people got this little prompt that uh, your neighbors started to save energy as well. And you guess what? The main driver of why people were actually saving uh, energy when they started to measure it after the little prompts was the neighbors did it as well yeah so we you know we don't want to look bad in front of our of our neighbors uh, but i don't think that people viciously lied first when they responded to the survey they just sort of didn't think uh, uh yeah. like this. now what's the implication uh if i'm a company so i can do steve jobs where i uh say okay i i will just give it a shot i'll throw something out and i see uh whether people actually like that. A lot of startups do something similar, an experimental type uh, of approach. You can do it also in controlled type of experiments. Uh, Airbnb, for example, has, uh, you know, product development teams that do controlled experiments where they have two groups and they change uh, a feature in their uh, product offering or one of the buttons or so they have online for one group and not the other. And for exactly the same uh, time period, you observe what's different. And that way, you know, they can see what, what actually works. So they don't right. ask the customers, but they actually see what their customers uh, are doing and not doing. That's probably a much smarter way to do and now you know to draw the line back all to our our early part of the conversation with open strategy 
you might think also of involving some of your customers in the strategy making uh, process because that's a much deeper conversation than just sending out a survey and i think in that conversation uh, customers will be in a position to sort of you know get give you this the kind of inputs that are truly helpful for you it always requires as well, Kristen, if this is fair to say, uh, some patience, because when you do A-B testing and you're looking to sort of almost validate through that creativity results and kind of almost coming up with other incubating new ideas, does is patience one of the virtues that it's required for this to actually happen uh, materially positive? Of course, yeah, because uh, things never quite work out maybe as you plan. Uh, there is a million things that you tried, only one will work. Yeah, patience is a big one. Yeah, yeah. I don't have it personally, but uh, it's a good one to have. <laughs> <laughs> Neither do I. Squirrel! I mean, I, I'll be distracted <laughs> till the, the end of time here because I'm so excited about new things. Okay, uh, two last questions. So the Penalta one here, uh, I'm going to date both of us, but uh, 10 years ago, uh, you wrote a really seminal piece in MIT, MIT Sloan Management sorry, called Why Good Leaders Don't Need Charisma. And in it, you're sort of providing uh, evidence that charismatic business leaders um, uh, typically possibly can outperform or not outperform their ordinary counterparts over the long run. So tell me a bit about today, 10 years later, is charisma winning or is it not? Uh, you get outliers, yeah? And I think that's true then as much as it is today. Uh, you might be lucky and you hired Steve Jobs uh, where, you know, this guy is going to bring the organization to a place you never go without uh, him or you would have never find that space. But likewise, it's possible you hire somebody who brings you in a direction where you absolutely don't want uh, to go. The charisma, in a way pulls people along and they might you not know, the usual kind of defense mechanisms that they have uh, up there are not quite as, as strong then. Uh, and in the long run, the risk, I think, uh, of getting it right with the charismatic leader is higher than uh, the benefit of having somebody who's a solid team player who doesn't uh, think that he or she will just do it alone. I mean, how big is the chance that you happen to hire the next Steve Jobs? Uh, just put all your money uh, in the lottery and probably chances are higher. And being struck by lightning in the same day, I think is possible. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Uh, okay, so I want to end with, uh, I think, a, a mutual admiring individual in our lives and uh, I was fortunate enough to meet him twice at a Drucker Forum in Vienna, and that's Charles Handy. Oh. And um, I'm just, I mean, we've both living off of the shoulder, uh, the giants of of his shoulders uh, to a degree. And you you brought up something pretty profound in sort of your uh, recently uh, point, poignant observation of Charles and this, the notion of going for a walk. And it kind of ties back to my uh, earlier question about patience. And so I guess just on a reflection basis here for you, Christian, sort of what is Charles Handy meant to you, but also just his the notion of the walk that you point out and sort of, you know, the example you're using is sort of being in North America and I think specifically in Boston and sort of opening up to his guests. Let's just go for a walk. You know, let's go to the Boston Commons and let's walk around a few times. I thought it was so I know you're uh, paraphrasing, Charles, but it was such a Charles Handy example is like you couldn't get more personified of charles handy this walking legend of patience and observation yet more often than not the guy is right 
when it looks at the management techniques, right, of what we should be doing. So I'm just curious, your thoughts live, right, about Charles and sort of the, the idea of Charles and the walk and patience. So this is a story that he told via video at this year's, at, was it this year? Last last year, really. Last year, one, yeah. Last year's trucker forum. And um, he, I think he's too frail, is getting old, so he couldn't travel actually to the forum, and therefore he sent uh, the video. Uh, so the story is that he is with some friends uh, in Boston, and uh, he suggests after lunch, let's go for a walk. And uh, Americans like goals, yeah? So they ask, so where do we go? <laughs> And uh, Charles says, no, no, we go for a walk. And they said, yeah, but we need to know where we go. Maybe we can even drive there. Yeah, so we don't have to go. Uh, and Charles sort of realizes, you know, these people need a bit more direction. So he tells them, okay, we walk first clockwise and then we walk counterclockwise around the Boston Commons, the park in, uh, in Boston. So they do that. They go, they go on the walk. Then when they come back, the, um, the man of the house, the husband, uh, takes uh, Charles aside and says, you know, at first, it was quite odd for me to go on this walk. But as I did, I started to think about my life. And I realized that I actually don't like what I'm doing. So I want to go back to college and become a teacher. But don't tell my wife. She doesn't know yet. Uh, you know, beautiful story, I think, yeah, where essentially what Charles is telling us, we need some unstructured activities. And walks seem to be particularly good in this, where we just sort of, you know, stroll around, let the mind flow, and occasionally, some really good ideas come uh, from this. Others, you know, might do that under the shower. That's that's fine as well. But the the core point is, you just don't always follow a particular goal. You don't always want to achieve something. And in this unstructured way, um, better and more solid things come about. Uh, I like that. And and as you said, I think that's very characteristic of him. What a beautiful way to to end this. Thank you for that so much, Christian. This has been uh, just a highlight a thrill and uh, continue to learn a lot from you. Where can we find out more about the great Christian Stadler? Uh, maybe one of the easiest ways uh, to either follow my LinkedIn uh, newsletter uh, or Forbes. You know, I, I write there. Usually I try once a month uh, a piece uh, uh, there. So check, check that out. Uh, my latest one came out this morning and I've written about uh, whether managers should doubt. So, you know, that's uh, maybe a piece to pick up. Well, I don't doubt you, Christian. And uh, big thanks for you to be on the show today. Again, look, I will look forward to the next one. And hopefully we clink glasses uh, either at the Drucker Forum and or Thinkers 50 Forum uh, later on in 2023. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. Bye. Okay, everyone. Another episode of Leadership Now with me, Dan Pontefract, today in the house, Christian Stadler. Boy, was that fun. Thanks. And uh, tune in next time to another guest here on the show. Thanks again, Christian.